The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day. This is Mitch Winnick welcoming you to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. I usually have my sidekick here, Stephen Wagner, who's a law professor at at San Luis Obispo College of Law, but Stephen gets the day off. You know, we actually do give that a, a, a break every once in a while, but but even better, Stephen's being a great dad. He's supporting his daughter, who's a, a very talented young tennis player, and she has been winning her matches and is in a tournament in another town, and Stephen's there as the dutiful dad and, I guess, dad coach for this. So I... I Wish Stephen and his daughter the best in the outcome of the tournament. But Stephen's going to miss a great show today because I am just delighted to have as our guest Lita Sedaris. And we have talked in the past to lawyers who have alternate careers and have done interesting things, both while they're still a lawyer and, in addition, sometimes after they've stopped their full-time lawyering. And Lita Sedaris is an author. Lita is an author. She's still a lawyer. She's been a magazine writer. She's a poet. She's been a teleplay writer. She is really an all-around skilled individual. And she's going to also tell us about her new murder mystery book that's out. Lita, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Mitch. I am delighted to be here. Well, Lita, tell us a little about... First First of all, let's talk about your your lawyer practice. As I, as I understand, you've been an entertainment lawyer, which seems like a pretty natural transition to go from being an entertainment lawyer where you're representing the creative artist to becoming a creative artist. So tell us a little about your practice as an entertainment lawyer. Well, I'm no longer an entertainment attorney, actually, Mitch. I'm currently the executive director of the Santa Barbara County Bar Association. So I went from high profit to non-profit legal work. But when I graduated law school, my first job out was as an entertainment attorney in a movie studio, and that's where I got the idea for my current book. And so it takes, it's a bit of a leap, though, from being a lawyer, where obviously as lawyers we do lots of writing, but it's not the kind of writing that most people find very entertaining, unless you make a mistake that the judge or the jury finds humorous. Talk to us about the transition that you made from lawyer to writer. It is a challenge, Mitch, because, you know, as a lawyer, uh, it's kind of technical. 
but as an author, it should be very simple. So in my particular case, I probably ended up with 140 or so revisions, simplifying every draft so that it could be readable. And I don't know if you've heard the tip uh, given to authors about honing your draft, and it is to read it out loud. Read the whole thing out loud so it's very conversational. And that was very helpful in simplifying it and not sounding like it was a brief or some legal document that you've... uh, come up with. So did you break it down into sections? So did you start with a a first section and read it out loud and revise that section? Or did you write basically an entire first draft and then start working on the revisions? That is exactly right. They say that as writers, we need to get that first draft out there. That's what I'm currently doing with my second book. It's so tempting to go back and revise what you wrote But that's a stumbling block because you'll never get past it or it'll just take too long to get past it. Plus, there'll be so many other revisions along the way that you want to move forward. You want to progress. So to do that means finish that first draft, then go back and revise and revise and revise. So let me take a little sideline here because having brought two children up who've now been through high school and one's now finished with college, the other's still in college, but I've sat there at the painful process of trying to help them revise something that they've written. And I got to say, there have been tears involved, usually mine by the time the process was over. But talk to a a young writer that might be listening to this about the the process of, of moving forward, having the the kind of the guts to to write that first thing and then be willing to have someone edit it? Well, I was my own editor, so fortunately that I didn't have to have someone else look at it. But again, it's very important to get that first draft out. uh, And it is painful because I know I had a love-hate relationship with my draft and even with the revisions, because sometimes you'll have days where you think this is the greatest piece of writing in the world, and other days you're looking for the nearest trash can because you think it's just awful. But it's, again, important not to get caught up in that and just to press on ahead, because you could come back in a few days or a few weeks or a few months even and look at your draft and think, you know, this is actually not as bad as I thought. It's, it's, it's pretty good. And, again, you keep doing that and doing that until you reach something that you think you'd be proud to have someone else read to other people to read and that's what occurred yeah and that's i think that's one of the best lessons because even in law school when we're dealing with you know people who are you know fairly sophisticated students they're in graduate school they've been through college many of them in, in our school have also had an executive career and the idea that the first draft isn't the last draft is something hard to get across very, very much so. Even now, as I'm doing the first draft of my second book, I just want to stop and fix it. I don't want to go on. And in my mind, sometimes I say to myself, well, this is going to be good enough. <laughs> but you have to throw that away and not pay any attention to it. Because I, maybe in some cases, the first drafts are good enough. I don't know. But definitely in my case, it needed it needs a lot of help. And Thank goodness, because as I went on, you know, you gain a certain level of confidence because you learn more, you realize what works and what doesn't work. And in this particular book, it's a lighthearted mystery, so I had to insert humor, which is not easy to do, because what may appear funny to you may not be to your reader. 
So very important to, again, read and revise over and over again to get it to be just right. So tell me a little about when and how you write, because I've, I've talked to a number of, of authors, and in fact, I, I've written a couple you know, non-fiction books, which is a totally different approach, but... Before I did that, I sat and talked with one of my law professor colleagues, and he had out one of the just premier books, on, in that case, on alternative dispute resolution. And he said he got up and he wrote a certain number of pages every day that he had designated as a writing day. And it didn't matter if they were good pages or bad pages. He wrote that number of pages. Sometimes he came back the next day and threw them all away and started over. But every day that was a writing day, he wrote. What was your approach? Well, how admirable that he was able to do that. (laughs) My approach, since I do have a full-time job, is to write whenever I can. So weekends are spent entirely writing. And as you said um, he did, I would just write. And some days they were terrible and I had to throw them out or toss them aside. And other days, um, they just flowed. And to help the writing flow, I get up a lot. I don't stay glued to my chair. I get up and walk around. Uh, I might do some menial tasks, such as dishwashing, which I heard was very effective for Agatha Christie. (laughs) It it works. uh, So that my mind is free while my hands are busy to think and to ponder what I wrote and what the characters could say or could do, and I find that very helpful. On the, during the weekday, um, when I'm highly motivated, I get up about 5 and write before I have to go into the office. At lunchtime, when I can, I go to the local library and sit there and either write something, anything. If it's not my novel, it might be a blog post for myself or for someone else. And then in the evenings, if I'm lucky, I'll write, but I generally don't because I'm a little bit too beat. Uh, to go there. Well, we're, we're coming up on our first break, but when, when we come back, I, I want to talk to you a little about how you made, made that leap, because cause certainly writing as a lawyer is not necessarily, well, in some cases I know, not related at all to writing as a fiction writer, and there's a certain craft involved that you had to learn, and I, I I, I guess I'll start after the break with a question for you of, it. I've heard others say that to be a good writer, do you have to be a good reader? And so, th- you know, think, think about that, because what I'd like to do as you and I talk about your actual book and, and talk about the story and your success with it, uh, I'd like to use this as a way to answer the question for many of the folks who are listening to say, well, could I do this? You know, what would it what would it take? Uh, and that that's that's the thing that I think many lawyers want to know. Could I actually have that book inside me that I think? So we're heading to our first break. Don't go away. And when we come back, you'll we'll continue our conversation with Lita Sedaris. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law.
Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy LaRevere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Law Dean Mitchell Winnick, and I am joined today by Lita Sedaris, who's an author, a former lawyer, a magazine writer, a poet, a teleplay writer. Lita, before the break, I said we wanted to talk about how do you learn the craft? You, you've obviously tackled a number of different writing techniques. How, how did you do that? Well, you know, Mitch, I have never had experience for any of my jobs. When I was an entertainment lawyer, again, it was my first job out of law school. I had no experience. Bar association, no experience. So I didn't really have much experience with writing other than just sitting down and doing it. And you'd asked also about reading. Reading, as I think Stephen King said, is the creative center of a writer's life. If you want to write, you should take a book with you everywhere you go and find any opportunity at all to dip in. Um, even if you're reading in small sips versus, you know, chapters and chapters, it's, reading is of utmost importance to learn to write well because you get a sense of what needs to be included when you write, the, the sound, the tone, the, the rhythm of sentences and dialogue. All of that is so important when you want to write. And again, I know Stephen King, um, author Stephen King, is a big advocate of reading, 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 and writing, writing, writing. So you just, you just have to do it. That's the best way to learn. The way I got started on, with this particular novel was that the San Francisco Writers' Conference was having um, a scholarship for writers of historical fiction. I had never written historical fiction, but I sat down and wrote a few chapters and submitted the first chapter to the conference won the scholarship, went there, and was very surprised to find people believing that I could write. And being a lawyer was an added boon, because when you tell people you're a lawyer, they automatically assume, thanks to the, to the John Grishams of the world and the David Baldalchis, etc., that you can write. So they will sit up and pay attention, and they, they do believe that you can you can do this, you can write a novel, and you can do it well. So I had that going for me, despite the fact that I had no experience. Was it, is it harder now, as you read other authors, now that you've, you've been through the process yourself? It, has it changed the way you read? Is it harder for you to read, perhaps, bad writing? <laughs> well, um, I've been a voracious reader my whole life. I mean, ever since I could hold a book in my hands, I've been reading. Um, no, I think even from bad writing, you can learn something, what works and what doesn't work. And um, what's bad to me may not necessarily be bad. There are some popular books today that I don't necessarily enjoy. I don't like to read things that are depressing because it's the job, my job can be intense. I prefer light reads these days, and that's why I wrote a light read, because that appealed to me the most. Uh, so I try to learn something from whatever it is I read. Again, whether it's bad or whether it's nonfiction uh, in a different genre. Because you never know what you can take away with you and what might spark an idea that you can use in your own writing. We've talked in the past on this show about the effect that technology has had. Uh, we've had teachers on our show that talk about the impact it's had in the classroom and the, the patterns of, of how and what people read. 
from your standpoint, both as a lawyer and now as, as an author, uh, what do you think, or what concerns, if any, do you have about the effect that technology is having on all of us? I mean, is our life becoming a, a long read as something more than 144 characters? You know, it, it is a concern, but I'm, I'm actually uh, encouraged by the young people that I meet, college graduates, recent college graduates, and those attending graduate school as well, who actually say that they like the feel of a, a print book. So maybe there's some pushback from all this, the technology, the, the e-books and so on. Uh, I think there was a recent article in, in the New York Times, perhaps, that stated there is a resurgence of print books. So maybe that's changing, and people are going back to the tried and true. I know that when I actually do my writing, I do use a laptop because I need to get it out fast. I don't want to forget anything. But when I go back to revise, I like the hard copy. I like to physically feel it and see it and get a better sense of it than I would uh, via the laptop. So your editing that you do is, is you, you use a print copy, I, I assume, to mark up before you go back and digitally make your changes? For the most part, yes. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good lesson. It's it, one of the things I find interesting is is that you talked about you are your own editor. Now, I've I've written a lot of words over my career, but one of the things I have found is that I am not the best editor of my own work. I'm not a bad editor of other people's work, but I'm not the best editor of of my work. And one of the things I've heard writers say is that your brain reads what you intended to write. But that may or may not be what you actually wrote. I agree. And I think I'm an anomaly because most of the authors I speak to ended up hiring editors or using their publisher's editor. I used my publisher's editor, but she made minimal changes. I think it was because I took my time. This, this book was written over a period of about uh, maybe two years, two and a half years. And again, the revision process I took very seriously and did it numerous times and I was ready if my editor wanted to make changes I was ready for anything you know I kept telling myself have an open mind because there will be things you may not have considered that the editor will but it, when it came back to me again there were very very few changes so somehow it worked for me with the second book I don't know if I can be that lucky again <laughs> I may need to hire an editor myself or I may just have to leave it to the maybe the publisher won't like this one as much I, I don't know but for my first outing it seemed to work well well this I know this is going to be a frightening question but <laughs> do you have an estimate of how long it took you how much time did you spend in writing this first book Oh, I do know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I started right around the San Francisco Writers' Conference, which was February of 2012, and I finished about nine months later. That's the first draft, though. So, so nine months for the first draft. And, and during a regular week, how many hours would you estimate that you put into the writing for those nine months? Oh, it's hard to say because some periods would go by. For example, after my first draft, I was so green that I didn't know that you don't send the first draft out to agents. It's <laughs> usually embarrassing. So I sent it out to about maybe a half a dozen New York agents, and I received one back from a big-time agent who said the only thing he liked was the title. Oh, ouch, that so, hurt. So after that, I, it, it was okay. I, I fell into a writing funk and didn't write for a few weeks. But, you know, I was raring to go immediately after, and it just made me want to try harder. 
So that's when the um, serial revisions began. And that took, that took probably just about two years. And the decision about between self-publishing and publishing through a, a traditional publisher, what, what, what balances did you go through in that decision? You know, I, from the outset, did not want to self-publish because it required a learning curve that I just didn't have the time or the dedication to, to learn. I wanted to be traditionally published, but I do know authors who are very successfully self-published and went on to self-publish more books and even go with traditional publishers. Okay, well, Lita, when we come back from this break, we're going to actually talk about your book, Murder and Other Unnatural Disasters, and I'm looking forward to hearing about it. You're listening to Wagner and the Winnick on the Law. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy LaRiviere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you're a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, 
SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. Oye.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. My guest today is Lita Sedaris, author, lawyer, magazine writer, poet, teleplay writer. And Lita, you're about to tell us about your first novel, Murder and Other Unnatural Disasters. So tell us a little about how did you come up with the story? And without spilling the beans on what's going to happen, tell us a little about the novel itself. Well, it's loosely based on my own life when I was a newly minted lawyer uh, landing my dream job in a movie studio, but that's about where the similarity stops. Unlike my heroine, I was not blackmailed into investigating the suspicious death of a co-worker, and that's where her story begins. Um, in, throughout the book, there are a series of encounters that are kind of strung together some are real, a few of them are real, but most of them are imagined. Uh, and that's basically what the book is about. I came up with a tagline again when I first started, and I'd attended the San Francisco Writers' Conference, and I thought I had this great opening line for the book. She swore she'd never turn into her P.I. father. <laughs> but, but that was before she ran over the body. So <laughs> okay, so that, that gets your attention. That started out as the first line of my book, and I wrote a prologue. And there is a golden rule for all new writers, and 
writers in general, some can get away with it, but you never start your novel with a prologue. So as much as I thought that was the best piece of writing in the world, I had to toss it. And I kept thinking, well, I've got this great line. What am I going to do with it? And so when the publisher picked up my book, I gave it to them as a tagline, and they loved it. So it, it worked well for me. Well, that's great. And so, so tell us, look, why, why do they say no prologue? Because I've seen many, I've read many novels that have a prologue. I know, I, I prefer, I like novels with prologues myself. But I think it's a simplicity factor, and they're thinking that most readers won't go on if it gets confusing up front. If you have to go back in time and give it too much thought, maybe, I don't know. I don't even know if it's correct. Again, this is what agents say uh, and some publishers. Personally, like you, I like a prologue. So tell me about naming characters, because it, it's, I, I know if when you read a book, you think, oh, how hard this could this be? You know, yes, but then you think about it, and there must be hundreds of characters in your book, from the person they pass on the street to somebody they're buying coffee from. I mean, there's just hundreds of them, and it's a lot of names you have to invent. They don't all have names, but the two uh, love interests for my heroine have the first name, their first names are the middle names of my children. Okay. <laughs> the main character, Cory Locke, I don't know where I got her name from. It just kind of fell into my head and seemed to work, and I kept it. It's simple, easy to remember. But one character, another, she has many love interests in this book, um, the entertainment industry, there are a lot of maybe peacocks strutting around who need attention. Now, is that why at the beginning you said that this, the, the biographical nature of it stopped right there at the very exactly. first? <laughs> exactly. But Come on, didn't your, some of your friends kind of give you the, the little evil eye there and say, okay, yes, who was yes. that story about? Yes, as a matter of fact, my, uh, my, you know, back then we had secretaries, not assistants. They were called secretaries. And one of them came to one of my book signings and she said, she had matched everyone to the real people, and I was shocked at her response because it, none of them were true. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I just thought that was wonderful that I made it seem so real that they thought that that's the way it was. But one character's name is Clay Pot. And I got that name because I was driving, and I had this beautiful clay pot in the seat next to me, and I had to strap it in. And I was looking at it and thinking, you're so lovely on the outside, but so empty on the inside. So I took that name for one of my characters because that's exactly how he was. He looked good on the outside, but he had nothing going on on the inside. So his name in the book is Clayton Pot, otherwise known as Clay Pot. So are there family uh, trains through your transition to law and in writing? I mean, do you have lawyers or writers in your family? No, actually, I was the first lawyer in my family. The majority of my relatives are in the medical field. They're doctors. And I was the first um, novelist. My grandfather wrote reference books, many, many of them, uh, on botany. But there have been no fiction writers in my family. So I, this is groundbreaking, I it's guess. groundbreaking. As as so I'm sure some of... So, so as you're writing it, and people knew you were writing it, were, were there times that people pressured you to let them preview parts of it? No, because I told no one. Oh, okay. My critic was, it was, my, was and is my mother, because she also reads a lot of mysteries. And she was the perfect candidate, because she's a very harsh critic. And if something didn't work, she'd be the first one to tell me quite bluntly. Um, in my first draft, I had no subplots, so she said to me, why don't you put in some subplots? And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. So the two subplots I added in were because of her. 
So is it tempting? Now you, you said that you know these are not. It's not biographical, and you've just made up the names. But but it, it must be. Well, I should ask it as a question. Did you find yourself writing the personalities into your characters that were at least loosely based on people you've known in your life? Well, Mitch, I don't like to write about people I know, but I will write about people with whom I have brief encounters. For example, <laughs> there is a basketball player in the book. I was on the golf course here in Santa Barbara with my junior golfer, and there was a professional basketball player who asked us if he could play through. And we spoke a few words, and I got a sense of what he was like. And I guess he uh, made such an impact on me that I based a character on him. Just, just from that little encounter, he seemed like a kindly, gentle fellow who could potentially get into trouble, and so my basketball player was born. So, so if there's a radio show host in the next novel i you know i i might be a little nervous but but i shouldn't worry about it being too close to the truth i was just thinking that <laughs> well tell us a little about your second novel so to the extent i know the you had this first one you kept under wraps for nine months which i don't think i could have done i, I think if i was in the midst of of writing a book i would be talking about it so you you have a clearly a different uh, strength of character than I have on something like that <laughs> I I think I work better when I keep important things to myself and this is a vital importance to me is like a, another child almost uh, but my second book is the sequel or the second installment to my first book so my heroine continues her adventures uh, I just moved the venue a little bit northward. She's in the first book. She she lives in Los Angeles, but works in Orange County. I'm going to have her move from her Orange County job because of the scandal, and move on to the studio lot in Los Angeles. And she's going to have to clear her best friend of a potential homicide. Aha. Okay. And so the thinking ahead so you've got yeah, i know you haven't finished birthing the second one yet but but do you do you see this as something where you could have an, an entire series of these with you know dozens of books i, I don't want to get that far ahead of myself <laughs> but i would like to do three of them because i have a uh, plan i'd like her to have her get involved or actually get in trouble with the state bar uh and see how what she has to do to, to get her make her way out of that well i can say that i've had a fair amount of involvement with the state bar as the dean of a state accredited law school so if if you need any help on that part feel free to call i'll confidentially share with with what i can thank you thank you <laughs> so tell a little about now I, I saw a teleplay was in your your bio tell me a little about that and was how diff that must have been significantly different as a style of writing it was and i i wrote that immediately after i stopped my entertainment lawyer job at the studio. I had gone on maternity leave and wondered what I could do during that time period. And one of my aunts, who's a dentist, uh, had a boyfriend at the time that was a well-known musician. So we wrote the teleplay was a, for a sitcom. There was a pilot for a sitcom about a dentist who's dating a rock star. And we got to go to all the big studios and pitch the work, which was a lot of fun. And we had interest from one of them. But ultimately, after many, many years and many, many rewrites again, our styles of humor didn't quite mesh, so 
that did not move forward. But it was a great experience and made me realize that I don't want to ever write another teleplay or screenplay because there are just too many people involved, too many people with their hands in the, in, in the batter, I guess. And that's why I turned to doing a novel, which I could do on my own and would have more control over the content, I felt. And what about the format of writing shorter pieces? Like, you know, you've, you mentioned that you have a blog. Uh, you've been a magazine writer. Uh, what, it's, it would strike me that it's, again, a completely different mindset of writing a piece that's measured in hundreds of words, not chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't find it as difficult as writing the novel, obviously, because it is shorter. Uh, but you do have to be more concise. You do have to get to the point a lot faster. But I regard each of my chapters as a short story almost, where it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, with the end being hopefully a, a cliffhanger. So the reader would like to go and see what happens in the next chapter. Well, that's good. So we're going to take our, our final break here. You're listening with Lita Sedaris, author lawyer and when she come we come back we're going to talk with her about what would it take what might it take to have these books transitioned into a movie for example you're listening to Wagner and Winnick in the law don't go away Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go. So it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. 
Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Law Dean Mitchell Winnick. My co-host Stephen Wagner has the week off. We're giving him a, a little break to, to be a, a tennis dad as his daughter has been successful at a, a regional tennis tournament. But I'm delighted that we have here today my guest, Lita Sedaris, who's an author, a former lawyer, a magazine writer. She was just telling us about being a teleplay writer. And Lita, where I want to go next is, is it every writer's dream to eventually convert that book into a movie? Well, it's certainly not Sue Grafton's. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but she has, I think she has it in her will that no one may ever make any of her movies in, or books into movies, having been a screenwriter at one time herself. Um, and why do you think she felt so strongly about that? Uh, because... I think she felt she'd lose the integrity of her novels once they were translated onto the big screen. And then a lot of these, uh, I say a lot, a number of authors play an uh, active role in writing the screenplay from their book to their movie. So from that standpoint, they would maintain control. But what, what are your thoughts about that? You know, when I wrote the teleplay, uh, I didn't care what they did to my draft. 
I just want to see it on the big screen, or the small screen, actually, it was for TV. Um, and I feel that way about my novel, too, as long as they don't turn it into something terrible, uh, which I can't imagine. Well, maybe I can imagine, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure, really. If uh, I'm not sure. I think I have to cross that bridge when I come to it. And if, so if, let, let's say you did get the call, somebody's read, read your novel and says, okay, we, we can absolutely see this as a movie. Given what you know with a teleplay versus writing your novel, and let's say, let me just throw another hypothetical at you. So here you are in the middle of your second book, you get this unexpected call to, to do a movie of your first book. Uh, yes or no, would you want to say, okay, I'll set the second book aside and then work on the screenplay for the movie? Oh, well, where, where do I sign? <laughs> if I'm working on the screenplay for the movie, yes, or at least uh, have some sort of consultation rights over it, then yes, I'll do it. <laughs> so who, you've, uh, you obviously you mentioned a number of, of lawyers turned authors. Uh, how, how would you compare your, your work in the genre? Like, who, who do you resonate with when, when you read other lawyer authors? You know, I don't read other lawyer author, authors anymore, Mitch. I did read the early John Grisham stories, uh, same with David Baldacci, but somehow I moved away from those. I just maybe got tired of reading about lawyers. The author that I resonate with the most is Janet Ivanovich. She writes a Stephanie Plum series, also a very lighthearted mystery about a female bounty hunter. And I like the fact, I really appreciated the fact that her books made me smile. You know, taking a long plane flight, they were very helpful. Uh, so I wanted, they always gave me a good feeling, too, after I finished reading them, and I wanted to do the same for my readers. Um, if you can make someone smile through your words, I think that's something exceptional. Well, and, and, you, and you mentioned earlier that your, your choice of reading now is the more lighthearted that you look for that. So, so it, your, your influence in what you're reading has definitely influenced in what you're writing as well. Absolutely. So the process, let's talk a little, just a little more, because I want to circle back around in these last couple of minutes and, and talk about the process of writing and what it would take to encourage someone else to, we would have said, take up the pen, but I guess it would say take up the keyboard. Uh, many lawyers I've met and, and a fair number of business people say, well, you know, I have a book that I want to write. There's a book in me. I mean, they just are absolutely convinced. So if, if someone said that to you, let's say at a cocktail party, what, what steps would you recommend to kind of test that premise? Do they really have it in them? Go out and buy a ball and chain. A heavy <laughs> right. Tie it, tie it to a chair in front of your laptop and sit there until you've completed it, because that's the most difficult part. Uh, starting a book is not that hard, but completing it, or the first draft anyway, is, is a huge challenge. I know because I started two books before I completed this third one, um, and I just along the way didn't want to complete them, and so it never happened. But this, this third one, I was so determined and so disciplined to do it. I kept picturing myself about how I'd feel if I didn't finish it, and that was incentive enough to, to see it through. And I would also suggest they write for the joy of it, just because they really, really love writing. That's what will see you through, and will see you through completion. 
Well, because it's because as you've said, it's it's a long it's a long birthing process to to get a book out. Uh, in the in the concept of of writing, do you think that, or how do you think your not your nonfiction writing was influenced by you being a lawyer? Uh, again, as lawyers, our word usage is important. What we say is important. The right word is of utmost importance. So. I think that helps a lot, again, in concision and in just stringing along a, a good sentence, putting a good sentence together, and then another one. Also, I don't know about you as a lawyer, but I listen to the way people speak a lot, conversations and dialogue. And sometimes I even, at this stage, edit them in my mind. And I think about what, I might borrow something from someone who says something to me, and I might use it in my book. Oh, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. I, I do that as well. I listen very carefully to people when they speak. So, so I, should, I should, when we listen to the archive version of this show today, <laughs> and then I know that you'll go back and listen to it, I have to think that Lita is there editing my words as she re-listens to it. Well, it's... <laughs> That could be the case. It's not right now because I'm not in heavy editing stage myself. But when it was, I couldn't listen to the radio without editing everything they said. Well, that's true. So. That's, that's really interesting. So when you're hyper-focused on it, you find yourself editing everything, what you're listening to, what you're reading. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really something. So tell us just a little bit about your work as we wrap up here as the executive director of a bar association. Most people don't know what that is. I didn't know what it was before I started, but I run the fee arbitration program, the lawyer referral service program, uh, the MCLEs, the continuing legal education programs. I basically do whatever needs to be done while working with about 700 lawyers and judges. Well, as we wrap up here, tell us where we can go to find out more about your book. Oh, you're welcome to visit my website at www.litasideris.com. Com, and you want me to spell it, Mitch? I uh, go right ahead. It's L I D like detective, A S like sleuth, I D like deadly, E R I S like suspect. Great, thank you, Lita. It's been great having you on the show. Thank Everyone, you. this is you've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Always a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts, answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.